0: Voices of Children. Hello from the employees of the Commonwealth Club. Thank you for tuning into this podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to take a moment to acknowledge the international crisis taking place in Ukraine and highlight an organization working to support the most vulnerable of all the victims, the children. Voices of Children is a Ukrainian organization dedicated to ensuring no child is left to deal with the trauma of war alone. Working at the front lines of the Russian invasion in villages along the Donetsk and Luhansk region, Voices of Children provides a variety of services like art therapy, video storytelling, mobile youth psychologists, and more. If you'd like to help or learn more about Voices of Children and their critical work, please visit voices.org.ua/en. Thank you for listening. Welcome, everyone, to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. Thank you for being here, if you're here in the room, as well as everyone watching and listening online. For those of you who are here for the first time or watching or listening online for the first time, the Commonwealth Club is a what, how old are we? We're 118 years old, old 118-year-old nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to civil discussion of important issues of the day and, frankly, finding uh, workable art space in, in a city like San Francisco where no one can find space, I'd say that's an important issue. Um, you can find all of our programs that are coming up, as well as video and audio of our past events, at CommonwealthClub.org. Um, if you're in the auditorium, if you would, if you've got a cell phone with you, please put it on silent or vibrate. And uh, we want to give a shout out to a uh, thanks to Cast SF and Counterpulse for the coffee and treats out there before the program. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce Michelle Miao, the host and producer of the Michelle Miao Show, and a member of the Commonwealth Club Board of Governors. Michelle and our speakers, welcome to the stage.
1: Thank you so much for joining us for this very important and exciting discussion. And thanks to all of you for being here today. hope you enjoyed the coffee and treats. So thank you, Cast SF and CounterPulse, for making this program happen. So let me introduce to you our speakers today. We have Moya Ying, who is the CEO of the Community Art Stabilization Trust here in San Francisco, and also Julie Phelps, who's the Artistic and Executive Director of CounterPulse. Let's give them a round of applause. I always like to start off the program with a personal conversation because it's easier to talk to friends than it is to talk to strangers, and we're not. Um, So let's open up with you, both of you, sharing your San Francisco story, and it could be anything. We've seen, we've heard a range of stories from coming to the city, being born in the city, or, you know, an incident or a memory that you enjoy and love about San Francisco. Julie?
2: Yeah. Well, we were talking about this yeah, actually we were. in the dressing room because this is a really momentous occasion, which is why we're gathered here, and this year we're about to buy our building. So there's been a lot of reflection, actually, on all mm-hmm. the personal stories that have gone into making this happen. So during the talk, we'll talk about, like, the logistics and the brass tacks of how we made it possible, but a big dimension, the in-between-the-lines dimensions, is the relationships and the stories. So I was I was remembering my first time meeting Moy, because when I first got involved in CAST, CAST was actually just in the um, really early stages, hadn't really been incorporated, wasn't yet an organization, and Moyang did not YET had not yet come onto my radar, so we had actually already gutted the building that we'll be talking about later today, and had a kind of champagne toast to just sort of celebrate the groundbreaking, and that was the first time that I met Moy, and she had just moved into the executive director position at CAST, and we were, uh, you know, underway, breaking ground, and it was one of my colleagues' birthdays that day, and Moy was like, you know, if you don't mind, I'd like to sing Happy Birthday, because the acoustics in the room are so incredible, because it was, you know, totally empty, and just this operatic Beautiful, like like bird song came out, and I just knew I was like, you know, this is gonna work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but my my San Francisco story really is the story that we'll be hearing today. I, I've basically grown up at Counterpulse. I started working there when I was 24 and have been able to see the organization through multiple transitions and you know, growing into further legacy, but also just growing in scale. Um, to today, really, where we're buying a building and putting down permanent roots in a city that I really love. Woo, that is awesome.
3: <laughs> so huge.
2: Boy. I, I can't
3: even follow up a story <laughs> like that because I'm already I in it. I stole your story. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, not at all. It's, it's, it's a pretty wonderful story, and thank you. Because um, it really in, in, uh, it entwines both the personal and professional in a way that Our lives have been so um, with Counterpulse and Cast, And um, I would say how I came to San Francisco is, uh, like many, um, I came because of a job, but I came because of a very super cool job. I was asked and said yes to coming to lead the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation's grant-making program. So I got this extraordinarily privileged view and possibility of really supporting um, the bay area arts ecosystem and one of the things i learned was how prohibitively expensive space was here and i was coming from manhattan Mm. and so it was stunning and it was two surges ago and so one of the things that I had the honor and, and responsibility of doing was identifying this as a critical issue during the 2000s. And um, thankfully, with the support of the board and the president and senior management at the time, we invested, when it was a we, $20 million to make happen a million square feet of new cultural space permanent in the Bay Area across nine counties. So frankly cast is just the next chapter of that one thread that I've gotten the honor and responsibility of moving forward
1: Wow Wow we're, we're, we're gonna hear more about that moving forward process but let's go back to before the partnership before we actually got here today I mean throughout the 20 plus years that I've lived in the Bay Area every year is kind of a heart attack because you go into that lease renewal process and then you're like, where am I going to be? Yeah. I can't imagine what that's like, you know, for um, a nonprofit, but let alone, you know, a, a nonprofit that services the arts. So Julie, take us all the way back. What was it like p- prior to the partnership? What was Counterpulse's situation?
2: Yeah. So at that time we were at ninth in mission and we moved into that building and got 50 cents on the square foot. And there was just holes in the ground and like derelict, donut shops and mattress shops that were clearly a cover operation for something. And so the we were there for 10 years, and the Soma changed a lot during that time. Sort of at the pinnacle of that is when Twitter moved on to the Market Street side of our same block, becoming our neighbor. And at that point, we were three years from the end of our 10-year lease with our 50 cents a square foot, and we, you know, were not assuming we were going to be able to renew at that same price. So we started shopping around. We were also outgrowing that building. It was about... a f- two-thirds smaller than the facility that we're in now. And, you know, we did the things. We, you know, talked to consultants. We started doing strategic plans around what facilities would wrap around our services and what kind of debt service we could take on. Um, All the kind of standard measures that, yes, um, most (laughs) bring you to a heart attack more than to an inspiration point. But our story took a kind of sudden turn to the right when, Um, One of the consultants we were working with called me up one day and was like, you know, actually, we have a building that could be a perfect fit for Counterpulse, and there's actually a way you could buy it, you know, and I don't know if it's just my outlook, but things that are too good to be true often are too good to be true, and I think this is the only example to the contrary of that that I can express And so we went and looked at this building, and they were like, actually, there's a foundation that wants to invest $5 million in stabilizing arts, you know, amidst that kind of, like, tech boom that was mounting. Um, And it seems like this could be the kind of, like, puzzle that might all fit together, and we'd want you to be the program partner and take on this facility. And it was just like, my jaw is on the ground. I couldn't, like, believe it, and the building was perfect, and just, you know, we'd done the strategic plan. We knew what we wanted. It was the right square footage. It was right by a BART station. It was all the things that we needed, so... So it's just, it's sort of like the standard nonprofit story of, you know, getting priced out, displaced, and then suddenly just became an entirely different story.
1: That's what we're telling today. Mm-hmm. And so, Moy, perfect time for you. I mean, talk to us about the, tri- I mean, what is the process? What, how, did, how did it all happen? What's the idea behind it? Um, CAS came about
3: because, um, as I mentioned earlier, And you've already said it, and so has Julie, that that living here is incredible and wonderful, and we want to stay here for lots of reasons, and one of them is arts and culture. However, we also happen to live in San Francisco Bay Area, which is one of the top 15 most expensive places to live in the world, and and one of the top three. So it makes it particularly challenging unless you're very, very wealthy, of figuring out a way to live and work here. And for creatives and artists and arts organizations, it's even more of a challenge. And for CAST, we came about in the last, just on the lip of the last surge um, in the the early 2010s to figure out with the founding board at the time and Julie, who came in very early on, as you just heard, when CAST was just a glimmer and an idea and an intention to figure out a way to perhaps hold on to some space in an affordable way. And so CAST came about in that way. And so that's our work.
1: How does it work, I guess, for like uh, people, well, Julie said it, you know, it just sounds too good to be true. And sometimes you ask like, well, where's the money coming from? Or uh, yeah, like, how does it work? (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
2: where's the money coming from is it <laughs> well, the money is actually coming from a lot of different places which is one of the more fascinating parts about it I mean you know, it's it really interesting, Counterpulse's programming and the artistic side of what we do, but this has become an incredible part of our contribution to the <laughs> field as well, is actually figuring out where does the money come for, for something like this. People care about it. People want to see arts and culture stay in spaces in city centers, but it often people don't have the models. So there was $5 million a, a, of seed money in, uh, invested by the Reynon Foundation, and that was really just out of their vision for just wanting to put their money where their mouth is exactly. on this problem we all know we we're facing and is nothing new to anybody. And then that was be, was able to be leveraged for additional funding at the an upstart of CAST. And Moi could say more about that. But another major funding mechanism, which I find particularly exciting, is a federal New Markets tax credit, mm-hmm. which is, you know, like the Twitter getting the um, tax, tax break on their payroll. You have to have a community benefit to qualify for these. And Counterpulse was actually the community, community benefit in this much larger tax credit deal that brought $1.3 million of federal money into the tenderloin of San Francisco.
3: And that was in addition to about the 1.2 at the beginning, 1.3, that Counterpulse brought into it in terms of philanthropic dollars. We then found the rest of it through philanthropic dollars. And so that made the proverbial acquisition deal happen. And then over the last seven years, Counterpulse has been using that time to go deeper into the community to expand its programs to do and and I don't want to put words into Julie's I've been the admirer and the partner from not that afar and so we are now at the first window opportunity at the 7 year mark where the new market tax credits wind down and counterpulse can state its state its intention to want to buy back the building and have a permanent home of its own. And that's what we're here to really talk about.
2: Yeah, yeah, and it's not complicated. It's really just somebody fronting the money to an arts organization that has its feet on the ground, but who could never participate in the space chase otherwise. And just, we've had seven years now to get a running start. Mm-hmm. And that's all it's taken, really, you know? Like, continuing to do our work, as mm-hmm. Moi said, like, really rooting and deepening our impact. Exactly. And, um, you know, earning our building in a way, you know? Um, but yeah, it's 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 poetic. Just like it's simple in a way, but you have to find those people who want to make that first leap and make an investment um, of the, of that scale in, in this city, and also take a risk on a nonprofit. Um, but we were lucky enough to be able to make it happen
3: by another nonprofit in partnership. And it's yeah. really what I think. Whatever the details, and we will go in through some of the details. Um, is it's about patient capital, both leadership as well as straight up cash how do we make this happen what's the time and how can we make this through these mechanisms structurally and financially possible so that Counterpulse and other community arts organizations that are poised who want and are ready to work towards a home can do so
1: mm-hmm. and i ask this question really because there's lots of folks who join the conversation who are thinking you know I want to make this happen as well because the, the art, the conversation around displacement isn't just here in San Francisco and especially during COVID-19 and at, you know, how COVID-19 or the pandemic affected the arts community. Um, if we could, you know, talk a little bit about that. And if you, both of you share kind of what you're seeing, how, how the pandemic has made it harder or worse maybe uh, any, any of the data, like what's, what's actually happening in the arts community right now?
2: Yeah, well, there's, a, there's many things to talk about along that thread. Uh, as it relates to the future and other arts organizations having the opportunity to do what CounterPulse has done, one of the most brilliant dimensions of the partnership that we're in is that um, all the f- capital that Counterpulse raises to pay cast back for the money they fronted to us is then, you know, in the hands of a nonprofit real estate developer whose mission mandated to serve the arts and culture community. So it doesn't just go into the pockets of of individuals or for-profit developers. It actually is then able to be invested into the next project. So. I often you know, like, feel humbled to be able to do something that's so much bigger than myself, both in terms of setting the roots in the Tenderloin for Counterpulse and ensuring a permanent space for experimental arts, but also having raised this capital that will continually be recycled back into other people's real estate projects is just a huge Definitely. honor. So it will gain momentum. We're the pilot project. We're the first one to complete the model. or are we are almost completing the model? <laughs> We're no thi- we're this this close. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's so it's this is set up to be, you know, the dream of a frictionless machine where the capital that we work together to gather mm-hmm. then continues to give back the gift that keeps giving um, in terms of how the pandemic has um, impacted it. I mean, I can tell a personal story about counter You know, we were three years out from the end of the seven year unwind when, um, when the pandemic struck and we were you know intending to launch the final phase of our capital campaign then and you know finish the acquisition of the building and then instead we were boarding it up and canceling all of our programs and like i suddenly became like a really bad tv producer you know um and we had to ask ask ourselves like should we be buying a building right now like will people ever want to come be in small black box theaters with each other again and you know we all remember those early pandemic days where it felt like it was not clear if we were ever going to find our way back to the path. Um, and, you know, in a way we haven't, but it has been renewed that having space to create arts and culture is more important than ever. Artists need space to, that is safe for them to gather in the early pandemic, just rooms that people could be distanced from each other, but in person and sharing practices and continuing to make and, you know, nurture their peer networks and things like that. So we just dumped a bunch of money into HVAC upgrades and just sort of, you know, tally-ho. Um, <laughs> um, so I think it is really important I also think that virtual space has become an important part of the architecture of the arts and culture field, and I think we're really glad for that. We're finding new ways of reaching people that we'll stay committed to even while doubling down on, um, you know, stewarding a facility. Um, a lot of places have closed. It's been hard. Earned income just went off a cliff and hasn't really returned. Counterpulse is mostly th- operating through a philanthropic model. And has, has, we've actually been able to use the pandemic as a time to deepen those relationships. So we're stable right now. But that's not the story of all arts organizations, for sure. Even just some of my peers, like Gray Area, um, you know, they, uh, they were running an earned income program in a, in a way that I was envious of. And before the pandemic, I was like, oh, wow, I wish I had that kind of ticket. Sales, you know, and actually, then that model really suffered, you know. Um, so I think, you know, the story of the arts and culture field in every city that changes as quickly as San Francisco does is always one of resilience. Like we will always find a way because we are a creative community. We're resource, we're diverse, um, but it has it has been it has been a struggle. Wouldn't lie about that.
3: Um, I'll just echo what Julia said so eloquently. For Cast, we double down. Our our focus is on finding solutions in partnership with artists and creatives and arts organizations to really look at long-term and permanent solutions to acquiring and stewarding space so we doubled down on that we're always going to need space it may look different but we will secondly what we did was also had to respond to our colleagues and partners in Oakland and in San Francisco and in particular the Oakland example is we created a new venture called Dreaming Spaces. And it was really prompted by artists and cultural cultural leaders in Oakland saying, we have venues, we have to close them. What do we do? How do we use our spaces? What about other spaces that are more open or outdoor? How do we gather safely again? So we came up with this initiative to really work with our partners in Oakland, in this case, because that's where we were at the time and when, when the pandemic really broke and venues were closing up because they had to and we were in shelter in place. And it's hard to, to just go back to that. And so we started looking at questions with public health officials, design leaders, and artists to say, what could we do? How do we think about this problem and how do we utilize space and gather safely within a new pandemic environment?
1: Could you talk a little bit more about you know, the venues that have closed and in a real effort to either revive uh, the venues or get people back into those venues? Do you have any information at all about some of the artists or artist groups or organizations that may have been forced to leave and, and want to come back, and what efforts look like in helping people come back? I think that's
3: a really great ecosystem Question and what I would just say is that one thing with that, and I'll just do a contrast and compare that governments, uh, or I should say, or countries like England and Europe, where there's a principal governmental model and much of the funding goes through that, um, and private sector funding less so, just percentage wise, that one of the things that one can do is really look at surveying collecting information because it's coming through all of the support that is much more decentralized in san francisco and in the u.s so collecting information on the broader ecosystem is much more around our our web of networks and that's our relationships and it's actually mostly anecdotal the last sense of surveys which gave us some sense real sense of factoids of what what was going on was in 2015 and 2016 where we had three surveys one conducted by san francisco arts commission that said what's going on why are you leaving are you staying what do you need The space assessment and it was it was sobering and none of it is a surprise to us now as we've looked back and it's only it feels ancient but nevertheless i think it's still relevant 60 percent, roughly if i'm remembering correctly of the artists that responded were saying they were they were looking at being evicted or looking at space instability within six months to a year and it was probably higher
1: yeah yeah I remember it, working with an or, a nonprofit organization, um, and uh, I mean, I think around 2015-2016, it was the, just a question of well, we might not have our own space, but maybe we could shack up with you know mm-hmm. a few other organizations. What's a process like when you're working with the building owners or the uh, any open spaces? And then you start talking about like the partnership. And so maybe Julie specifically talking about counterpulse and getting to this place. Like when you do you go in there and do you offer like, hey, we have money. We're going to buy this building. So, yeah, the the story of acquiring 80 Turk Street is actually quite interesting.
2: And um, it, it was a building that had been sitting vacant for at least a decade. It had been built in a cabaret in 1902. Um, you know, sort of went on an arc towards porn cinema over the many decades that intervened and then boarded up and sat empty from the early 90s on, like so much of the lower tenderloin. So the person who owned the building, um, more just like case in point than being able to maybe summarize, because I actually think it's quite unique, like each building owner is different, you know, is it part of their family wealth, like this particular owner, for example, had a kind of um, like just love affair with board poured concrete buildings. And so had bought up a bunch of those in the kind of like dot com boom or bust, I guess. Um, and then just was kind of sitting on them. This, there was, like, filing cabinets being stored in the cinema portion of this building the first time I saw it, you know? Just, like, really, really vacant. And, for, you know, it's, it's... At every point, one thing that we talk about, at every point of the project, there needs to be a kind of philanthropic spirit around... Um, that inspires bringing the cost down, right? Because it's, it's yes, this is a model for playing in the real estate market, but it's not a model for just, like, participating in just, like, the wild, like, you know, um, overpriced, like, everything going over asking, speculative right. market. It's also about, like, interrupting that energetically. So the... The a relationship was built with this person over the course of it's certainly a number of years. It was related to some of these space surveys that Moy was talking about and identifying vacant square footage in the mid-market district when that was a kind of priority of the city. And this building was identified and it had some you know gems when it comes to developing. It was already zoned for assembly, so there was no change of use. And these sorts of lubrications were really important to the whole project adding up. And one of those things was that the owner was friendly, had always just sort of wanted to see it remain a theater instead of get torn down and turned into like a, you know, four story condo building or something like that. And was actually really suspicious of us at first. I think we were both having the like too good to be true um, feeling. And uh, there was a cash offer on the building because the foundation had put in the five million um, to move and close on a building. And, and he sat on that cash offer forever. And like, just, and then it wasn't until he finally actually came to our location at ninth and mission and experienced the theater show and was like, so you really are like a theater group, huh? And I'm like, i trying to tell you this, um, you know, and, and so then he signed the cash offer that day and it itself was a sort of philanthropic mm-hmm. deal. Like he sold it to us for 1.3, it's 10,000 square feet, half a block from the Powell street BART station. Um, So that's sort of like what really got the whole thing moving, right? So effectively, the New Markets tax credit, it's a coincidence actually, also was 1.3. And it's sort of like, poof, it like didn't happen or something, you know, which is... Um, it's really incredible. I actually don't know what the appraisal of the building would be right now because it's so purpose-built and, um, you know, has so much very sophisticated technical equipment now that as a shell, I think it would be a really different question than what it really is as a purpose-built sort of cockpit for arts that, you know, it serves Counterpulse's purposes quite well. Um, So, I mean, I think that, you know, the networks, the weaving, the tapestry, the relationships, I think it really starts there. Like, there's a lot of people in this town who do actually care about San Francisco being cool and, like, not just (laughs) a bunch of, like, shiny bars, you know? And giving them a viable opportunity to enact that value is, is what we've done. Like exactly. Once the good news is there, like, the owner's like, oh, my God, this is actually a theater group who's going to buy, I'm going to sell this building too cheap, and who's then going like, to keep counter, San Francisco cool? Like, there's a lot of people who want to see that happen. So if you build the relationships and find those affinity lines, a lot becomes possible even in what seems like these impossible conditions of the speculative real estate market.
3: And I just want to add to what, what you've already said, Julie, is that that especially in your, your story and your, your point with, with the, the owner of the building, who didn't quite believe you. You both looked at each other suspiciously and sort of like, this is really great ex- and, and this is what I <laughs> wanted, but uh, are you who you are? Mm-hmm. And then there's money, there's really cash down, and we're ready to go. So it goes back to well, how does CAST work and how does CAST work with counterpulse? We work at the speed of trust. And I think that a lot of these relationships that go across public and private sector, working with the city, with the mayor's office, OEWD, San Francisco Arts Commission, grants for the arts, the planning department, and that's only just a few. Park and Rec, they're wherever we all touch with a particular program and an organization and the particular project. So there's that part of it. So we need leadership around this. Then there's the foundations. Cultural planners, how could we do this without artists? Because at the end of the day, artists and cultural organizations are at the center of this. And that's who really drives it. And getting back to the discount, in the dialect of of venture capital, everything needs to be at a discount. Mm -hmm. Somewhere along the way at key points, it's either that or philanthropic. And in this case, there was a philanthropic intent by the owner. And there was philanthropic dollars. Then there was public sector dollars with the new market tax credit. There was more philanthropic support, both to Counterpulse and to CAST, to make the acquisition happen, as well as the construction. And now at the back end, that's what we're looking at as well. And it's all for the long-term view of, of holding and stewarding a space that will be a permanent cultural asset to the community. My mind is so
1: blown. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's the truth, you know, about like people in San Francisco that still really, really care. I mean, the city would not be the city without its arts right. and artists and this, this culture that we've built um, that the world knows about. So, Julie, today, the, the, you know, we're at this point now with the buyback. I mean, what, is that, what does that mean to, to you and to Counterpulse and to a ton of artists who love the city as well?
2: Yeah. So, you know, Counterpulse has actually always been blessed to have relatively stable space and be endowed with just space to work in. We were founded in essentially what was an oversized living room on Divisadero Street by a collective of artists who started just producing shows and inviting their friends, which then became a community, to just do really just like low overhead, just sharings. And but it's like it shows you what space can do, what is otherwise just a group of friends becomes the founding collective of uh, an art space that's now 30 years old because they had a really big living room, right? It's like space is actually this ingredient, right? That's really important. So, you know, we, we had that and that was an incredible opportunity. Finding the, you know, affordable space in the SOMA was an incredible opportunity. And then moving into this. Um, So in a way it's, it's actually what's really radical about it is its continuance. It's like going to change things for Counterpulse to feel that we own it outright, and I think there'll be different energetics around that and also just being able to move on to other other dimensions of our work and community, deepening our impact, broadening our reach, these kinds of things, like, you know, just having the asset. Um, So, but, but yeah, I think in a way it's the way I've been thinking about is what's really incredible about this for Counterpulse is that it's actually allowed us to not have to change, you know, for us to just be able to continue our work and not all of a sudden need to expand our earned income programs so that we can pay for the way more expensive lease or, or whatnot, you know? So I think there'll be a a huge celebration and a sense of sovereignty and permanence that will come with buying this building and putting the roots down and knowing that it's deed restricted. And like that's like because it's been such a pet project of mine. And, you know, I've I've definitely been maybe like very protective of it. But then once the the building is bought and the deed restriction into some place, it's just going to feel like all this work that all these people yeah. who've really cared about this building being for the arts, then just gets planted in the ground as a seed. Like, there's nothing that can happen to it. It will be for arts and culture even if Julie Phelps gets hit by a bus and Counterpulse dissolves. You don't want then. that to happen. I know. My staff is like, you really honestly Please th- need to <laughs> stop saying that. Yeah, see, like, we need to get some wood That's on That's only the because stage. we both say it. I just <laughs> don't say that anymore. Um, so, so that, that'll be a part of it, you know. I think um, both being able to stay the same and then also just the energetic, like, click of, like... I actually grew up at Counterpulse, like I said, right? So I've actually, like... I have never owned a home and I'm really starting to wrap my head around what an Mm -hmm. asset really is. Like I'm a strong manager. I can manage a budget down to the penny if you ask me to. And like, I know how to work with cash. And this has been a real learning curve over the last seven years of being like, now there's this whole other thing in play that like is a resource that, you know, um, can be leveraged to do all sorts of things. And just kind of actually just that being on a discovery path and and partnering with the artists to discover that, like, what can this building do for us? What, what can this building be when there's no one to, tell us no like we could be like oh well, this is gonna tear this wall down you know what i mean we could really do whatever we want and that's just its own incredible asset to owning your building much less the permanence
1: you know yeah yeah yeah, that's all really exciting. By the way, um I think you just sold yourself to every single nonprofit there is out there, understands cash, makes money. <laughs>
2: <Like> you need <laughs> a penny manager <laughs> to all
1: <laughs> <my> <laughs> no, but I was I was gonna ask about, you know, the, the budget and it's kind of a geeky question, but I am curious to know, I mean, you got all this freedom now and if you were looking at like even five years, ten years from now, um in terms of the opportunities that, you know, if something something new, something different that you might be able to do now because you're not worried about right, like redesigning the budget to include thirty percent markup on a new lease or something like that.
2: Yeah.
1: I haven't thought that far. You're probably just, hey, we're just Ready for the buyback? Now.
2: Yeah, I'm like literally like. <laughs> it does the future exist after July? No. Um, I think the biggest growth pattern that Counterpulse has been on is one of a deepening path, which is a kind of strange way to grow, and that it's especially in in amidst the tech boom in Silicon Valley and scaling up and scaling up, you know, um, and and I think that will really be the difference. Like I spend a lot of time. And have spent a lot of time raising this money, just the actual task of raising money takes time and i I look forward just for my myself to just like more contemplative long like long timeline research projects that you know culminate in a like slower rhythm than like you know just like always hustling on on the next on the project timeline you know and I think that that will that that could be true of the community at large of just feeling like. You know, there's a general, like, churn that comes with being a nonprofit, a lot of project-based funding. You know, you you don't know that you have the money until you already need to be spending it. You're kind of like on the hamster wheel of the, the, the sort of nonprofit model. And I think that I've always been interested in sophisticating that model, in some ways dismantling it. Um, but just finding a way to slow down, especially coming out of the pandemic and, I think, at least for me and a lot of the people around me, just learning that slowing down is a really incredible opportunity, actually, not just a a burden. And I think that that just like, yeah, like knowing that you can project forward like 10, 20 years and that there aren't these huge variables that you have no control over that you can't plan for, like how much is your lease payment going to be? And then therefore, what does my business model be? And how many staff members can I have? Like you can just like really just like slow down the pace of certain types of planning and actually... I mean, just frankly, plan, plan things like it's hard to plan things when um, when you're you're just like hustling on not knowing the outcome of really important parts of what you do. Anything to add, Moy?
3: That what I just heard is, is, is what you're living. I mean, how there's not much more I could add other than you're the first. You got the dubious honor of pioneering. Thank you. (laughs) Um, And to see what happens when. Whether it's our personal home or our professional home, what it does is a level of freedom. Um, and especially in, in a really heated and sometimes overly heated market. So that's what I'm hearing, and to be to get to that place where you actually can imagine it, a life that's slightly different, and then what has already been said, and again I'm not going to say it as eloquently as Julie, is to be able to have the space to not have thinking about a, th- a for instance a 30 to 35% markup on negotiating another lease that's 3 to 5 years and hopefully you have a good landlord and how do i reshape my business model so that i can still support my mission and what what i envision for for this theater that's really about invention and reinvention and provocative theater and dance and performing arts and that requires risk capital, and a space to be able to do that. And when, you're, when you have a structural model, when you're in an overheated market, to free yourself of that to some degree is extraordinary and what we hope our work does in yeah. partnership.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah, it's kind of an interesting thing to consider space as risk capital because I think we think of risk capital as this like fast cash for like making, but it does feel like the building itself is a type of risk capital,
1: you know? Yeah. So yeah. can we go back to what you said? If I heard correctly, you did say that, you know, CAS doubled down during the pandemic to try to help as much as possible. Um, if you could, it, yeah, did I hear it correctly? Yeah, um, what we did was do two things. One is we
3: doubled down um, on our mission and our strategies, which is working with artists and creatives and organizations. And this work is you've just, you're hearing, we're all hearing. It takes years. It's an, And we're hearing the piece that's post-acquisition towards raising the money to have a permanent home. So these, the relationships, the capacity building, the needs assessment, the fundraising. It takes years, all while, for an arts partner, doing their work. So we continue to do, I, as, as I, I've mentioned in, um, in the past, I made a life professionally of working in the invisible, and that's really about the infrastructure. And every so often, I get to talk... And move the invisible to the visible. So what we're doing is just moving and talking about the work that we're doing behind the scenes to make a home happen for Counterpulse and all of the elements that go with it. And so what CAS did is continue our invisible work, because oftentimes, for instance, in when you're negotiating a deal, the owner does not want to be public. You're in the middle of a negotiation. You want to. If it goes public, they're going to say, "Well, I want a market value of the ten millions when my ship comes in." And there's a possibility and a delicacy around a, a, a deal negotiation that may need to be quiet for the benefit of the organization. In this case, Counterpulse. And I'm not just saying that's what happened. And for a larger ecosystem of seeing Counterpulse dive in even more in its roots. So there's a delicacy and a quiet. Um, And going back to the the invisible, is that at this moment, it's just we double down. We double down on the long-term work with our current as well as new organizations and, and creative entrepreneurs as well as startups. So we did that. And on Dreaming Spaces, which was our more initial response. We've done this before, in 2015, 2016, when displacement was on the lips and loudly on everyone. What are we going to do? We have to leave. Rents are going up. It's post-Twitter. So we, with then um, NCCLF, now Community Vision, we together um, were awarded a $2 million grant that, we moved out into the community to address displacement we were not planning on being a grant maker but again we have the skill sets and it was really in response to serve the community and because we could
1: yeah it's just so heartwarming to hear that um especially because you know during the pandemic we we were so scared there was a lot happening uncertainty and i don't know uh you know if julie you want to add what was that whole thing, like if you thought that the deal was going to fall through or I don't know, I my mind went to the worst. And then I was hearing from all my artist friends who, you know, were out of work, um, not sure where they, they were going to end up professionally and personally. Uh, so this the follow up question, even to your statement of saying double down, it was just like, I find it. It's just I'm just so emotional about the part that people care you found that people care that even through uncertainty and a pandemic that they're willing to say, let's continue the work. Let's do more. Right.
3: The answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm a hardcore long-term lover appreciator and long-term cultural worker. I've been doing this work personally and professionally I've just paid forward what I got in my childhood. Mm -hmm. So I've been doing this work for 40 years. So I've seen ebbs and flows in two of the super cities, New York and San Francisco Bay Area. So the issues that we face, we're seeing um, an incredible moment because of the pandemic. We see the ebbs and flows of when real estate is super expensive to really expensive to back to just sort of expensive. I know that's the baseline. Flows, um, however, and I know everybody in the rooms from the Bay Area and living here, so you know exactly what we're talking about in terms of the baseline. So, so there's a long-term. This, this issue is not going to go away. We need space. I mean, if we're going to stay in in the arts and support the arts and culture, we need space. We need money, resources, and we need leadership and there is really political will and i mean political in the community as you've just heard so beautifully from julie that people care so much because they they just want to know how can we have a role in this and so it takes indeed a village
2: yeah and it does it's the the model is really important because there there's so often this sense of helplessness when it comes mm-hmm. to the real estate and displacement and The idea that Counterpulse is sort of staking is, okay. we're buying a building, but we're also staking an idea, which is that it can be done. Like people can donate to something and we will amalgamate it all together and make a make a quilt and make something out of this. And we can we can work in real estate. We can surmount this problem. (laughs) And we have an example now. And the, the name of the program is very apt, Dreaming spaces, because I often talk about this as a sort of like dream that's coming true or something like that. And it's, that's a really important part of it is that the will and desire to do something can then actually meet with the, with a solution that actually can be followed through on and reali- be realized. And that's, you know, there's people who've given to Counterpulse's capital campaign who've given $500. And that's the single largest philanthropic gift they've ever given. And it matters to them that they're helping address this thing that's been kind of like a dragon in their lives um, up until that point. Like just displacement and real estate and the helplessness of that. And they're like, oh, actually, like we can we can you know we can overcome <laughs> um it's it's really powerful and it's it's an immense privilege to have been working with people investing in this because it's it's just been a really inspiring story of individuals um getting inspired to actually live up to their own values you know um so yeah it's 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 definitely the the model where we're offering into the world is hopefully just going to cascade into just many more stories like this. And it, we won't even be having this conversation anymore. I've actually kind of almost trained out the like, um, doomsday thinking of like displacement and this and that. Cause I just, all of a sudden started realizing I have to start telling a different story because I actually have a different story and not many other people have a different story than that. So I like weeded out the word displacement of all of Commonwealth's capital materials and things <laughs> like that. You know, I'm like, we need to make
1: the other story, you know? yeah i'll tell you it's so inspirational i'm I'm still in disbelief like i'm like this is really happening this is yeah and it'll go down in history and this is a story that can be shared many times over and over and over in in this right now future um so the question is do you think that uh or i guess explain how you might feel that this could save the arts i like, we have this this oh, conversation that's, in this I left.
3: We left our capes on the East Coast. <laughs>
1: <laughs> really? <laughs> like, like, well, <laughs> cause there's this ongoing conversation of the, how the arts were, was not necessarily prioritized in terms of support and funding, especially during COVID-19. We all had to, like, rally together and do it for our community, but where was the support from, you know, wherever. But maybe those were just microscopic conversation. Julie, do you mind if I take a stab at this?
3: Yeah. And it it really sort of echoes or takes piggybacks on the question or actually the issue of possibility. One of the things I've always felt when I moved here from New York, the place of four seasons, and coming here and it feels like spring all the time, which is usually a sense of possibility and new beginnings that it always feels like spring. And the very fact that Silicon Valley is here and new, new things, new inventions, and a counterpulse exists. So what CAST brings is effectively, in partnership with counterpulse, an idea, a model, a living model of how it can be possible. And one thing I wanna also pull up is the deed restriction because Super technocrat kind of thing, but for the geek in us, um, the deed restriction is the postscript, but the lovely postscript, that in that restriction, that means that if Counterpulse says, you know what, we're blowing up out of the building, in fact, we need another building twice as big. She didn't say this to me. I was this and, and and it's so fabulous. I know I don't want to do another capital campaign. That's that's the Julie channeling. Um, however, um, we're, we um, we want to, We I think the building's just too small. And and we want to stay in the Tenderloin. We want to stay in the mid market, but the building's too small. The deed restriction says that Counterpulse can only sell it to another organization that does principally arts and culture. Ah. So it remains a permanent asset. On the thing of possibility, I I think you remember at the top of this that we were talking about that we're one of 15 of the most expensive cities. Hong Kong takes that. We're usually 8 to 10. Um, We're number top, top three in the U.S. Dubious honor, really hard. We have been since our beginning when we were just baby a really an organizational baby in the mid 2015 2016 um other cities have looked at us and said they're working on permanent solutions um we're having the same problem what should we be doing and we're not saying we're the silver bullet we're saying that we're a living laboratory to see if we can deal with these issues in a creative and inventive way and counterpulse and our partnerships the first out. So cities like Hong Kong, Sydney, London, Paris, Tel Aviv, Vancouver, Chicago, and more have reached out to us and said, so what are you doing there? And we have become cited as a model, including in a non-arts publication, the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. So I think that it gets back to, it's lovely, is that this is a, this is a potential beta test and a model for possibility and hope that we can do something about it.
2: Yeah, and exactly. It's actually San Francisco's responsibility to, because we've spent many decades Mm and across many sectors cultivating this perpetual spring of opportunity and innovative ideas, that people are ready in San Francisco to invest in an untried idea. That first million dollars was not easy for counterpulse to raise, right? The too-good-to-be-true kind of preceded the ask, you know? It happened. Actually, people do take leaps in this town, and it feels like we owe it to the world to have prototyped this here. Like, I was just on a call with bankers this morning exploring some like bridge loans for like, you know, cash flow around the transaction, right? Like, just very mundane conversation. And they were, you know, they were inspired. They were like, wow, this is really exciting, you know, and they're, Technocrats to the extreme, actually, but really ready to s- say yes to it and, and find a way, uh, 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 you know, a financing product that works for this thing that they've never even heard of before. And that spirit in mm-hmm. the Bay Area, I think, is one of the kind
1: of underwriting successes of this project. I was going to add um, also an example of equity. There's so many people talk about equity, but actually uh, maybe maybe use it more like a buzzword than really understand what equity is. And I think that this is a great example. Um, boy, I think you were going to say something. No, to add something. I'm just, I'm, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're winding down on time. We got, you know, last five minutes or so and, um, wanted to have you give your final thoughts on, uh, you know, the sharing your story here and, I can we already kind of talked about the future of the arts and sustaining, you know, space for the arts. But it's an interesting time for so many of us. We're starting to go out there in the the world. (laughs) We're here. Um, We don't know what the future is going to be. It feels like sometimes we're taking two steps back, one step forward. Mm -hmm. And so if you could leave us with your final thoughts on where do you. Yeah. Like, you know. The arts. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that
2: the provocation of equity is a really good one to, um, to close on. And, and, you know, it goes back to a little bit of talking about the asset, right? Um, that we 're building equity right in a very concrete literally board poured concrete way <laughs> um, in the tenderloin, and that that 's really important to endow communities with equity, but it 's also a you know a way to navigate change you know like the, the c- cities like San Francisco and maybe all cities and maybe all things they do change right it 's going to change, and the difference between an equitable change and a you know an unfair change is just who gets to be involved in the conversation who has resources to participate in meaningful ways you know and counterpulse is sort of modifying the answer to that question you know we we are property owner in our neighborhood, which you know creates a different power dynamic when I show up at a police commission meeting, or when I go to public comment at city hall, or something like that. When I talk to my like neighboring business partners who are running running you know their business and what it means for us to be leaders in the community, and and that then the community listening and rootedness that Counterpulse has has like a transference point to be operating at a different level than you know you know just the programming that we do, but we can consolidate a community response from the stakeholders that we represent and then we actually have just redesigned and re-engineered some ways that the arts can be involved in neighborhood and community development Um, and that's really important because you know san francisco needs some answers to that question i think we've all seen a lot of neighborhoods change in ways that you know feel bland Mm -hmm. and like a lot of really important things were lost i mean the stud closed during the early pandemic you know um, it's, I think we, there's, we need to find ways for different people to participate in how the city is going to change. And this is also a model for that.
3: I'm never going to follow you at any
2: time <laughs> ever again. You're too sweet. Um,
3: I did leave my cape on the East Coast. Um, well, I would only add, and I'll kick the, the conversation a little up more, um, and stay within space as we look at equity, it's my dream vision and what I've worked for, no matter what my title has been over the last four decades, is to really look at moving capital, leadership, and supporting what what this America looks like and what this San Francisco Bay Area feels like and is manifested. And so as I bring it back to caste, and I'll just say the the full name because it's not a misnomer, Community Arts Stabilization Trust. That I'm hoping that we can do more of more models like a counterpulse because nobody is like counterpulse in the sense of creating a larger fund for investment with partners that are rooted in community That have strong financials that really want and need an envelope a space so that they're able to whether they are traditional culture bearers to reinventing forms that i can't even speak of because it's really new that there is a space for them a physical space to share that and we need more of that and it will take more resources in addition to leadership So that's all I have to add to that
1: very quickly. And uh, last question, I promise. But uh, Julie, tell us what's coming up at Counterpost so we can end with something exciting, something to look forward to.
2: Yeah, it is exciting. It's the first season we've planned to be completely in person since the pandemic. And it's also exciting that it hasn't been completely in person already. But there's a spring brochure actually in the lobby and you can check it out at counterpost.org. Um, we have some more conversations like this related to CounterPulse's role in the community to build awareness and understanding of our acquisition. Mm-hmm. So if, if discourse events are a preference, there are a few more. One coming up on the 7th with Gary Camilla to talk about the Tenderloin specifically and the sort of cultural that it, asset that it is to the city of San Francisco. And also one at the end of April, I believe on the 30th, looking at the nightlife economy and CounterPulse's sort of like interloping and support um, with that community. Um, we also have a slate of uh, performances. Uh, Our annual gala, and uh, we call it an art party and auction, is on May 7th. So that's a really fun day to come out because it's sort of a uh, what would you say, uh, a whole work sample of Counterpulse. If you come to Counterpulse any day of the year, you might get a really different experience. That's one of the exciting things. The only one thing we do is no one thing, and this one event sort of brings all those threads together so you can, you know, participate in a drumming circle, see a, a visual art opening, we're unveiling a lighting sculpture on the front of the building, there'll be dance performances, um, and you can kind of, like, find your way into something that interests you at Counterpulse through that event. Um, so, yeah, please take a brochure, check us out
1: online. And then, Moy, if someone, I'm sure of it, there's going to be a lot of people who want to get in touch with you. And Save me. Save me, too. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll, have my, I'll, I'll have our collective
3: cape moved yeah. back from, from the East Coast. So if you're interested and uh, would like to be in touch with us, please reach out to us on our website at cast-sf, like San Francisco, dot org. I really look forward to s- to seeing all of you in the audience and to hearing more questions. And um, you should talk to Julie some more.
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna. I'm about to make you the most eligible bachelor on town. <laughs> like... Moy joked with me when we first met. We're getting married, and the good thing about it is that we know we're going to get divorced in seven right. years. We're, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're going we're to have the truly American marriage.
3: In seven years, we're going to have an amicable divorce. And you will get the house.
2: Deal. I was like... Okay. Deal. <laughs> God,
3: I've never heard a professional relationship <laughs> spoken like that before.
1: <laughs> it's been a joy and an honor uh, to be on stage and in conversation with both of you. This is an incredible story coming out of the pandemic and so exciting. So thank you to the work that you all do. Thank you to our community. There's so much love here and it certainly makes, you know, the, the future Full of optimism. So thank you, thank you to all of you for joining us today at the Commonwealth Club. Thank you to all of you who are joining us online. For more information and all of our programming, you can head to commonwealthclub.org. Or for specific Michelle Miao show programs, you can head to commonwealthclub.org/mms. Thanks again to Cast SF and to Counterpulse and all the delicious coffee from Fluid uh, and cookies from Crumble and Whisk. Yeah, so let's go enjoy some and uh, stick around for just a little bit to hang out. We'll see you next time.
2: Thank you, Michelle.